News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You shoot a 300 blackout into her head, causing her death. Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. Is that story not crazy? That's a little bit of the Alex Murdoch murder trial going on this week. I started watching that Netflix documentary yesterday. And I, even though I've been following the story for a few years now, it's still the details blow me away when I hear about them. And then, of course, following along with what's been happening this week. That's just one of several big stories out of the U.S. this week. So we thought, let's get a big wrap up of everything that is going on down there. So, of course, we're turning to Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Hello, Reggie. Good morning. Now, are you tired of talking about this story? Uh, no. I, I, look, America loves its trials of the century. They just seem they sure to come do. a little more frequently. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of trials of the century. This certainly seems like one. It's getting a lot of coverage. It, and I think it's just it's a family dynamic, right? I think there's something about this case, isn't it, that just fascinates people? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of different avenues that this case kind of keeps walking down. Number one, it's a prominent um, uh, legal family from South Carolina uh, that was involved uh, in a family matter where somebody died on a boat, where a second incident had to do uh, with charges against the son, where the father finds himself facing financial crime charges for the business that he worked for, which then ties into the case that is now before the public right now linked to the death of his family. Uh, this is a big trial. I understand why there are so many people that are interested and invested into it because it has been stretching for several years now and new things keep coming to light. It is crazy. Do you get the sense that this is captivating a lot of Americans? Absolutely. I mean, look, every single morning, every single American network has this in their kind of, you know, A block lead uh, first few stories. And this has been something that has been going on for weeks and weeks. And we I mean, look, the trial has been going on for roughly about a month now, and there hasn't been a day that's gone by that there hasn't been something new that has come up, including what happened yesterday when Alex Murdoch took the stand for the first time uh, and was being grilled through the end of the day by uh, by prosecutors. Um, this is it. This is captivating Americans. It is captivating the media. Uh, and there is a genuine interest to find out what is going to happen. Okay, so we're still following that. Uh, there's other things for us to talk about this morning out of the U.S. as well. Uh, it's sad to hear about Jimmy Carter this week. Has there been a lot of discussion about former President Jimmy Carter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is the oldest surviving president. Uh, it is also the oldest surviving president who has been out of office for more than four decades and still finds his name uh, in a better light now than where the light shone when he was actually in office. Uh, he entered hospice. Uh, this was announced uh, just towards uh, the end of last week or into last weekend. Uh, he's 98 years old. This is a man who has a political history that doesn't stretch very far, some time in Georgia government, some time in in the federal government, uh, and then a significant amount of time working uh, to kind of broker peace around the world while dealing with the kind of crisis that impacts the average person with his work with Habitat for Humanity. This is somebody where there is a long life lived. There are a lot of stories out there that are coming out, including some connections to Canada. Um, it's just it's a moment that the United States obviously doesn't go through very often when you have this long of a former president still yeah. alive, but kind of towards the end. That's so true. I think I feel like he's being more warmly remembered for his humanitarian work 
after his presidency as opposed to what he did during his presidency. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially here in Washington, there are a ton of areas in this city uh, that have been uh, provided efforts by him and the the efforts with uh, Habitat for Humanity to build houses. But I know that there have been uh, areas around Canada, including in Winnipeg, where the former president was to uh, to deal with uh, housing as well. So his work after the White House has long lived and long survived the kind of crises that yeah. he was dealing with while he was in the White House, including things to do uh, with the, the, the Iran hostage crisis and the high gas prices. Okay, well, that's, that's a sad one for sure. Uh, and how is the United States uh, marking, how's the government anyway, marking this one-year uh, anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, I mean, look, there's a, a virtual G7 meeting taking place being led by President Biden. Today, we are already hearing about a significant number of sanctions that are coming out amongst against hundreds of both Russian people and Russian entities in an effort to try uh, and drain the Russian war chest now that it's entering the second year. We've also uh, seen that there are going to be uh, billions of more dollars uh, provided in grants by the United States government to allow for Ukraine to continue moving forward, at least in its own economic way. So the war world is not doing anything to back down, despite the fact that there are some rumblings from within the Republican Party that they want to see this funding to Ukraine stop. There's simply not enough momentum within the Republican side, including from leadership, to stop that from happening. So here we are entering the second year. The world is not letting down. They are actually putting more pressure on Ukraine, uh, rather on Russia and on China, given that China is now trying to enter the sphere here of brokering peace while at the same time rekindling this connection they have with Moscow. Yeah, I saw that. All right, Reggie, thanks for the wrap-up. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global Washington correspondent, giving us a wrap-up of the biggest stories out of the U.S. this week. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today marks one year since Russia launched that full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And during that time, the United Nations says more than 8,000 civilians have been killed, including hundreds of children. Although, to be honest, the true death toll is unknown and is actually thought to be much higher than that. And of course, there's military casualties on both sides. And, you know, the thinking on that is that it could be climbing into the hundreds of thousands of people. And in all that horror, there are, though, also some signs of hope. So our Jeff Semple recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, and he joins us now to tell us about that. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning, Simi. Now, Jeff, you went to Ukraine last March in the early days of the war. Now you've recently been back. How have things changed in the last 12 months? Well, so much has changed, of course. And it's you know incredible to think back that we woke up this time last year to what was then a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And it really felt like every inch of that country was suddenly under attack. But as we know, of course, Russia's invasion has not gone according to its plan. It now controls about 17% of Ukraine. That number, though, is down significantly from the early days of the war. Most of that territory is concentrated in the south and the east, where we see continue to see some of the worst fighting. Um, we visited some of those communities that are just, some of them just post-apocalyptic, completely blown apart. But even in cities that are further away from the front lines, like the capital, Kiev, for example, people there trying to carry on they're going to work they're eating in restaurants but every day they're hearing these air raid sirens warning of incoming russian missile strikes and every day we're seeing more funerals burying young ukrainian men and women who are killed in the fighting Uh, one of the soldiers uh, told me that it's become sort of a, a disgusting new normal for the ukrainian people to live in this way so they are traumatized they are emotionally exhausted but incredibly i have to say they are 
they remain defiant and even more than we saw, I think, this time last year when we were there, it, it, the resolve of the Ukrainian people seems to have only gotten stronger. I and mean, you can hear it in their voices and see it in their eyes. They are so many of them are not willing to give Russia an inch if that were to mean bringing an end to the war. Wow, that is remarkable. Now, I understand that you've been working on a special report that's going to air tomorrow on the new reality. So, and it's about a Ukrainian community that is located next to a Russian-occupied power plant? Yeah, a pretty sick twist in this conflict. We visited the small city, a mining city of Marhanets, um, which sits on the Dnipro River in south-central Ukraine. And just across the river, on the other side is the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. It's Europe's largest nuclear facility, six reactors, and it has been under Russian control since the first days of the invasion. And Russia has rebuffed all attempts from world leaders and the United Nations to agree to a essentially demilitarized buffer zone around a nuclear plant to you know try and prevent it from being hit uh, and possibly sparking a nuclear meltdown. But instead, the Russians have essentially been using that nuclear plant as an army base from which to launch attacks at nearby communities, including this city we visited of Marhanets. Uh, so it, knowing full well that the Ukrainians wouldn't dare return fire because or t- potentially retaliation could be suicidal. And as a result, this little city has been taking a pound it has been shelled relentlessly for months, hundreds of homes destroyed, the hospital there completely overwhelmed. But incredibly, we found that that little community in Ukraine is receiving a lifeline from another community right there in British Columbia. And so we'll bring you that part of the story tomorrow on the new reality on Global. Well, that was a very good tease because now I really want to hear all about this tomorrow. <laughs> but it, what also strikes me about this, Jeff, too, is that there are stories of hope, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, we visited uh, one small city in, uh, sorry, one southern city called Kherson, which was a big victory for the Russians in the first day of the first days of the invasion this time last year. It was a regional capital that they captured and held for more than eight months. Uh, So a major victory that turned into a major embarrassment for Vladimir Putin in November a few months ago when the Ukrainian military took her son back. And we found that they were able to do that in part thanks to this underground resistance in the city. Ordinary Ukrainian civilians who were, you know, fighting back, organizing protests, uh, you know, marking Ukrainian flags all over the city in secret. And eventually they started feeding information about Russian positions and coordinates to the Ukrainian military, which in the end, helped Ukraine take the city back. So a pretty incredible story and a real testament to that now world-famous Ukrainian resilience. Oh, wow. I look forward to uh, seeing this. Jeff, thanks so much for that. Thanks so much, Simi. That is Jeff Semple, senior correspondent with Global National News. Now, there's lots of in-depth coverage of the Ukraine war anniversary with the stories as well that Jeff just talked about. So watch the new reality followed by a global news special, Ukraine, One Year at War. It is on Saturday, so that is tomorrow starting at 7 p.m. Make sure you check that out, those stories that Jeff talked about. Really quite remarkable that people can still have some hope in light of what's been happening there. This is Mornings with Simi. In the past year, thousands of Ukrainians have come to B.C. They've settled here as a result of the ongoing war. And the good thing is they have had help to do that. Now, Father Mikhailo Ozorovich is a pastor at the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral and joins us now to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning to you. How will you be marking this day? 
Well, I had uh, started yesterday. Last night, actually, we had uh, one of our uh, prayer services during Great Land during fast. Uh, and that was exactly a year ago when it was also Thursday, I remember, because we had our men's group that night. And about the same time we had last night's service, that's when the news came. And so for me, it started yesterday, the sleepless night today, and uh, today throughout the day, just visiting with family, continuing the work of helping the temper displaced Ukrainians. And then in the evening, there are two events, uh, one in our church, a prayer vigil for for Ukraine, and, and there's in downtown Vancouver at uh, Jackpool Plaza at 7 p.m. So um, that's how the day will look like. How What has it been like for the people and the families who have arrived here that you've had contact with that you have been able to help? Um, mixed ray of emotions, uh, um, um, but all that uh, begins with gratitude uh, and feeling of uh, feeling of, of um, experiencing love in action and hospitality of local Canadians and local community. Um, so that's definitely the biggest. People people come very stressed and very tired, uh, and still their thoughts kind of are in Ukraine, but they feel safe. So that's that's been. Uh, the greatest and then kind of reality sinks in we we have to start working we have to learn english we have to uh kind of get our life in order here while still being in touch with our families in ukraine being uh, connected with our loved ones uh watching the news and and co-suffering from the distance um yeah is there more that we could be doing do you think uh, there's always more than anybody can do. Uh, there's always more uh, that we can um, open our homes, our, our hearts with relationship, our job placements, uh, and our wallets uh, to support the causes uh, that, that aid those uh, in Ukraine or those coming here especially, because that's where we are called to do. Not Not all of us are... Most of us can't just leave everything and, and go fight in Eastern Ukraine. And we all stand for freedom and, and, and human rights and democracy. But all of us can do something here to support the temporary displaced Ukrainians. Um, through, through your, again, through your workplace, through your wallet, through your home, and through the relationship that you just developed in the community and being open with, to those who came from Ukraine. Father Mahalo, is there, are you still hopeful? Do you see hope in any of this? Oh, I, so the hope is increasing. There was very little hope a year ago, but with every day, the hope is, is increasing. I'm more hopeful than ever before uh, in, in, this, in this fight for freedom, in the assurance of victory of Ukrainian people. Uh, I am very hopeful uh, that the war that will be won by Ukrainian people will be a great mark in the history of, of, of humanity and uh, people of all uh, of the whole world, from other countries, will look at that as an as, as, as an example, as a witness to to our desire for life, our desire for life with meaning, with fullness, which is uh, free, which is democratic, um, and requires sacrifice. Everything mm-hmm. <laughs> that is worthwhile, like our life and life to the fullest, does require sacrifice. And right now, it is because we're in the period of making that sacrifice. 
but it's definitely worthwhile. And I do see um, not just some light at the end of the tunnel. I see glorious light of Ukrainian victory. Well, that's um, that's good to hear that there is hope. Uh, Father Mihailo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a blessed day. That is Father Mihailo Ozorovic, who is a pastor at the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral, uh, born and raised in Ukraine, doing quite a bit, actually, to commemorate this one-year anniversary and the thousands of families who have come to BC and they have provided support to, and there is still lots more work to be done. But as we've heard this morning, there is hope, too. Coming up next on the show, changes are being made so that there's more for nurse practitioners to do in our healthcare system. And a big one, too. We'll find out more about that next. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, they're going to talk about involuntary treatment. Those are words that we've been hearing a lot more of lately as we try to find ways to deal with our mental health crisis, our opioid overdose crisis, I mean, you name it. So the provincial government has announced that nurse practitioners will now have the authority to assess people in crisis for involuntary admission to a treatment facility under the Mental Health Act. So how will that work and what kind of a difference do we think this is going to make? Well, joining us now is Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. So what is this big change? What does this mean? Well, what this means is that um, uh, nurse practitioners, we've got about 900 nurse practitioners across the province, and we know that you know, many of them work in smaller, uh, smaller facilities in rural and remote communities, as well as, of course, uh, in, in larger centres. But the, the, the problem that we're trying to solve here is one that we've heard a lot of from municipalities in particular, um, who find that their, uh, their police officers get caught up uh, waiting in an emergency department to hand off um, somebody who's in distress, who's in crisis, who um, it needs an assessment uh, for admission under the Mental Health Act. They need to hand that person right now off to a doctor. And there are times when, you know, we know that our emergency departments are really busy. Uh, it may take some time for a doctor to be able to, um, to, to get to that patient. So this provides uh, us with more options. Um, so that if there's a nurse, nurse practitioner there, the nurse practitioner can take on that, init- that role of the initial assessment, the initial admission um, under the Mental Health Act, uh, thus freeing up the police officer to get back on the street and back to, back to their, 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 the rest of their job. Okay, so when does this, uh, when does this take effect? Right, right away. There's uh, pretty much right away. There's, you know, there, there, there's some, some work that health authorities will be rolling out just around, around their, the, the internal processes, but it's, uh, it's effective from now. Okay, so how much of a difference do we think this is going to make? Well, really, this, this difference is really, really about that handoff um, period. So the the objectives are twofold. One, it's to reduce the time that um, that the individual in crisis is waiting for that assessment, and to ensure that we get police um, for our, our police resources uh, out of that out of waiting in that emergency room and back out um, back out onto into their cars and, and onto the streets. So we we expect with. You know, I, I mean, it were, you know, we have a lot of nurse practitioners across the province. We've really dramatically increased um, that, um, that occupation and those, uh, that, that, uh, the, those, those individuals who are working um, in, our, in our healthcare system. So it will have, uh, we're, we're certainly hoping that it will have an impact in, in terms of those two objectives. Can we go further with that, do you think? Is it possible? You talked about like smaller areas, rural areas. <laughs> what about doing this kind of in our urban centers as well? Like, couldn't it make a difference in freeing up resources there too? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, where where there you know, wherever a nurse practitioner is working in an emergency department, they will have the authority to 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 undertake this work. 
Um, so uh, just the, 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 the link to more rural and remote areas is that we're often we see particular, uh, you know, particular challenges and, and staffing challenges in, in some of those areas. So this will be, um, I'm hoping, a really welcome relief to sort of medium sized centers yeah. and, and, and smaller centers. Because paramedics talk about this as well, don't they, about having to stand around and wait with, with somebody? Yep, and sometimes that that's, those are for different reasons. Those are, you know, there's that the, they're needing to hand patients off to, um, to, uh, to to staff and EDs who can who can do the admissions and, you know, de- deal with deal with the assessments. It's a it's a uh, not completely uh, uh, unrelated, but it's a bit of a different bit of a different issue there. Okay, will this require any more training? Do you think, or is this something that you feel like could have an immediate impact? Yeah, no, it will it will be immediate because you know we there's been. Um, uh, Health has conducted uh, a considerable con- consultation with, uh, you know, with doctors, with nurse practitioners, the association, the regulatory bodies, and you know, uh, there, there's it, this is a, a really a, cha- a welcome change that's been asked for by um, certainly by municipalities and other partners, and everybody's on board with it. Um, it's it's within the, the the nurse practitioner's scope of practice, um, so this is a this is a really appropriate um, you know use of nurse practitioner skills. Is this one step, Minister Whiteside, because we keep hearing about the government getting ready to embark on a much bigger plan to deal with mental health and addictions in this province? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'd say that, you know, again, this particular regulatory change is really related to a, a very specifically defined um, um, problem around um, access and flow in our, in our emergency departments. Um, I, I'd say with respect to sort of, you know, larger issues, which our government has been working on since we were since we since our first mandate in 2017. Since we developed uh, the Pathway to Hope, our you know 10 year plan for um, for mental health and addictions uh, uh, treatment, um, you know we we've been making significant investments in ramping up treatment beds, uh, ramping up counseling, investing in child and youth um, youth resources through our foundries, through our you know bringing in school districts through our integrated child and youth teams. Um, and there is no question that we have a really a, a rising tide um, of mental health concerns in our province, as, as many jurisdictions are, are experiencing right now. And there's that in addition to, uh, you know, a toxic drug um, crisis that, um, that that continues to really uh, to, to affect many communities. So those are very uh, very complex kind of kinds of kinds of problems that were that that are meant to be addressed by our investments in. Uh, in, in treatments and supports, as well as all of the work that we're doing on the uh, the toxic drug um, side to try to support people, keep people alive so that they can get to treatment. Yeah. Is there more coming on that front? Well, you know, we'll have a budget down next week and, uh, you know, that budget will, will demonstrate where our spending priorities are. Um, you know, I think Premier Eby has been very clear about what his priorities are. Um, you know, he's been clear in pointing to, you know, what we've done over the last uh, the last several years and, the, and understands the real urgency that British Columbians feel around um, having uh, supports and resources available for people who are um, experiencing uh, experiencing uh, distress and crisis as a result of mental health issues and also substance use issues. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, thank you for your time. All right. Thanks so much, Simi. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, the Vancouver Whitecaps are back and they are kicking off their season this weekend. We've been giving tickets away. We've already given away a couple of pairs. We still have more to go. Uh, Ken is our latest winner and it's good because Ken is going to see our next guest there, right? That is Coach Vanny Sartini who is back with us. Haven't talked to him in a couple of months. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. How was your break? 
Uh, good, very good. Like, uh, you know, the first part was uh, really, I would say, unplugging from soccer. So I went back to Italy, so the family, everything. And uh, then in the last uh, six, seven weeks was uh, much more preparation for the season and preparation for next Saturday. We we worked a lot with the team and uh, hopefully we're ready to go. Yeah, let's talk about a few issues that I wanted to bring up because if there's one thing I've learned, especially in talking to you every Friday, is yes. that slow starts in the last two seasons have really made it tough later on in the season. So what's your plan yeah. for that? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly the reason why we... We we did a very long preseason. We we we've been away for for six weeks. We've been to Spain first, then we had a couple of games there. Then we went to California to have uh, uh, four or five uh, games against uh, MLS opposition. So we actually worked uh, uh, really strong and a lot in order to be ready to to start well. And the other thing is that. Uh, uh, compared to last year, uh, we did uh, our like uh, uh, ac- acquisition uh, of new players in, in between the seasons. So uh, I, I can say that yeah, I would say the roster is basically complete already, and uh, we, we're ready to go. So okay, so there's no much... like there's no lead up here. They're ready to hit the ground running. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Everyone, everyone is um, is up to speed, and uh, you know uh, we are we are all really really eager to to start on Saturday. Good. Now tell me about these four new faces that you've got. Well, you know, we, we have this um, uh, Uruguayan defender, Matias, uh, Matias Laborda is uh, uh, a very good player, young player. He won the, the league in, in Uruguay. He can play uh, in every position of the defense, basically both uh, on the flanks and uh, as a center back. We have a new goalkeeper, a Japanese goalkeeper, Yohei Takaoka. Uh, we wanted an experienced goalkeeper, a guy that uh, uh, can be um, someone who can really lead the, the back line and he has the characteristic, we think, in order to help us uh, also not only in goal, but also when we have the ball and to to build up. Uh, we have Sergio Cordova that uh, was a striker last year, was at Salt Lake, and uh, it's an, our new DP. The DP are those three players that are called designated players that are kind of the franchise player. And uh, the club invested a lot of money in order to to bring him in. And, uh, you know, it's uh, hopefully he's going to be the guy who who guarantees uh, uh, help in the, in the attack and, uh, and, 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 and goal scoring. So, and on top of the three um, guys, we also signed the new kid that he was in college. We... We made like a trade in order to to get uh, higher in the in the in the list uh, uh, to to draw to draft him, JC Gando. That uh, he he's probably the only one that is still not 100 percent because of a visa issue. Right. He he could reach the team only like a week ago, but uh, soon will be up to speed. Okay, and the other thing is, I know eyes on the playoff, right? Because um, what was one point I think that we lost yeah. out on last year, and now this year they've expanded the playoffs to nine teams per conference. So that that sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Yeah, they could have done it last year, so it would have been. But it's yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so pink. But you know what? I don't think we want to scrape in this year, do we, Vanny? We don't want no, to do that. No, 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 no. But you know, I hope that uh, it doesn't interest us the fact that uh, they we have a. There's a, there's a spot more for the playoffs this year, 
and uh, because I think we have this, the the quality, the skill, uh, the will, and uh, I would say uh, even the uh, uh, inspiration. I feel a kind of a special sensation in the team that uh, uh, we we can we can make the playoff uh, earlier than the last game. Well, I hope so too. And listen, good luck. Thank you so much. We'll Thank talk you so to you much. next Friday. That is Coach Vanny Sartini of the Vancouver Whitecaps. We're back talking to him on Friday mornings. And yes, their game and their season kicks off tomorrow. BC plays. Uh, they're playing Real Salt Lake. And we have more tickets to give away. So keep listening for your chance to win. We have lots of other stuff to give away too this morning. Up next, though, we're going to talk about Canada's support for Ukraine. Why aren't we sending more of one particular item that people feel could make a big difference? We'll talk about that next. This is Mornings with Simi. We've put on the table over $1 billion of military aid, ranging from M777s, that's heavy artillery, uh, to armored vehicles, to cameras for drones, to winter clothing, to fragmentation vests. It's really a comprehensive effort to provide Ukraine with the equipment and material that it is requesting and that it needs to fight and win this unjustifiable war. That is Defence Minister Anita Anand talking about support for Ukraine. She was on our show on Wednesday. That was one of the topics that we discussed. And there is a lot of talk today about the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and continuing discussion about what Canada is doing to help and whether or not we could be doing more or perhaps doing things differently. Well, our next guest feels there is something very specific we could be doing. John Iveson is a columnist at the National Post and has written about this. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Uh, now tell me about some of the discussions you've had with some soldiers. They've got some thoughts on what we could be doing, don't they? Yeah, well, one one guy in particular, a Canadian veteran called James Chalice, who's been in uh, Ukraine for almost a year now. Um, he, I spoke to him last week and he was saying, this is a drone war. You know, these aerial unmanned vehicles are, for the first time really, I mean, they've been, in, they've been present in other wars, but they are now integral to everything that the both sides are doing and the ukrainians apparently have requested specifically that we that canada supply canadian made drones and we have not done so and uh, when i spoke to people in government they said well we had discussions about it last year but they didn't go anywhere there didn't seem to be the same level of uh, urgency on the canadian side as there was certainly from the ukrainian side and why do you think that is john I think that the, the government took a lot of persuading that it, this was a war, that lethal aid was required. I mean, it, it, there was no lethal aid committed until the invasion, um, despite the fact the Ukrainians have been asking since 2014 for, for Canada to, to supply weapons. Uh, we, were, we were very strong on the, the training front. We had people in Ukraine training the, the army, and that proved to be extremely important. But we didn't supply weapons until uh, the invasion took place. Even then, I mean, if you listen to the clip you just played on of Anita Anand, of the things that we did supply, we supplied 39 LAV armoured vehicles without guns and without turrets. Um, we supplied cameras for drones. We've supplied winter clothing. All the lethal aid, which was, you know, sort of laterally, they were persuaded to send four howitzers, four tanks. I mean, of all of the 80-plus tanks that we've got, many of them are not... Um, serviceable or certainly not useful overseas and we've sent four and I think a lot of people raise their eyebrows here can Canada only afford four tanks 
Um, we've sent ammunition that we've bought, and, and one particular big purchase was that was a uh, an air defence system, which I think it came in at somewhere around four hundred million dollars. So it's not like we have done nothing, but um, you know, when you look at the, the the donor nations, Canada's pretty well up there uh, because you include things like soft loans and you include things like uh, immigration. When it comes to military aid, we're not particularly impressive in what we supplied. Right. You mentioned that the Ukrainian government has specifically requested a particular type of drone from Canada. What is so special about this drone? Well, I'm told, I mean, I'm not a drone expert, but I'm told that the the drone that's produced in Waterloo, Ontario, it was a a Canadian company that was bought by a big uh, U.S. defense company uh, a couple of years ago for for a lot of money. And the reason they paid the, the money was because this Sky Ranger drone is considered one of the best sort of multi-rotor systems. It's, it's um, I mean, it gets a little bit complicated. It's not that this drone is as weaponized as some of the others. I mean, some of these drones are actually mini fighter aircraft. This is not the case with this one, although it can be weaponized. But I think it's just particularly good when it comes to surveillance. Uh, it, can, it can see through clouds and whatever else. I mean... The soldier, James Charles, that I was speaking to said, you know, we don't move anywhere unless we've had drone surveillance. He said, this is a drone war. Every drone is armed. They're used every minute, every every day. Most deaths are from drones, either directly or from corrective fire from mortars. I mean, if you've got a drone in the air and you see that your mortars are not landing where they should be landing, then you can correct that. And he says, these things are now absolutely crucial to both sides. And so, so we have this technology. So we have this almost like edge and drone technology, and we're not exploiting it. Does it feel like that? That's what it feels like. I mean, um, you know, the, the government have made a big deal about the fact that it responds to the list that Ukraine gives it. Uh, we saw that when they supplied a hundred million dollars worth of um, Senator Armour cars. The, uh, apparently, Ukraine requested them. We sent them, or we're in the process of sending them. But for whatever reason, drones have not appeared. They have appeared on the Ukrainian list. They haven't appeared on the, the list of things that Canada has committed to. And it's not clear to me why that is. Do you think, is there a possibility this could change? Do you think this is something that the government is even aware of? Yeah, very much aware of it. And I think it will change, yeah. I do think that they're, they're going to be uh, perhaps pressured into doing something they partic- don't particularly want to do. Um, I mean, part of this is the fact that... Uh, Canada's military is not uh, overflowing with great equipment. I mean, that's part of the reason that the the Department of National Defence has been loath to part with some of the stuff that it's got, including some of its best tanks. It's like we'd be giving Um, away things that we don't even have for ourselves. Right. I mean, when it came to the uh, defence system, the air defence system, which we're sending to Ukraine, the DND has been calling for that same system for years and without success. So... It's a it's a very large bureaucracy. They're not particularly good at buying things quickly and cheaply, and I think the the feeling is that if we give it away, then we won't get we won't get it back for a long time. So you know there are there's a number of strands going on here. It's just not a particularly responsive bureaucracy, and um, you know again maybe maybe there's a feeling that why should we be sending drones when we don't even have them ourselves? Yeah, John. Thanks for telling us about it this morning. 
Okay, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. John Evson is a columnist at the National Post. Uh, you can read more at the National Post website for sure, but this issue of the drones and what Canada's technology is capable of and what we are not kind of using to send abroad, it is an interesting one. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how do you feel about a four-day work week? You may have heard that the BC Green Party is championing this idea, but where is it coming from all of a sudden? Well, actually, it's research out of Great Britain, which was just released, where 61 companies offered their employees a four-day work week as part of a pilot program. And get this, 92% of them noticed benefits. Things like revenue stayed the same, but they lost fewer employees, and most of the companies showed no loss of productivity either. So this British study is getting a lot of attention, even here at home. Could a four-day work week become the new normal? Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Dale Wheelahan, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Four Day Week Global. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about this research. Uh, I know that your group was involved in this. It sounds like it was pretty extensive. Yeah, it, it has been, I suppose, building on some preliminary research that we did, uh, of which the results were launched back in November um, on Irish and U.S. Uh, companies. And yeah, this is really the, the largest scale study that we have done to date. Uh, Four Day Week Global, we're a not-for-profit company which have been running pilot studies across different jurisdictions, evaluating the effectiveness of reduced working hours um, on a a myriad of different variables, as you mentioned there. The UK study then we did in partnership with uh, the two UK uh, organisations, the UK campaign and then a a think tank called Autonomy as well. Um, And alongside that then we've had academic expertise evaluating the, I suppose, research side of things in Boston College and Cambridge University. Okay, so this was a serious study. And what were the parameters of this? For instance, like, it's not like people are doing less work, right? They're doing their same jobs. They just have to do them in four days. So for Day Week Global, we operate under the principle of 180-100. So 100% pay for 80% of the time for 100% productivity. So in many instances, what our goal standard is to get people to 32 hours of working um, across different industries. Hmm, Okay. And so what kind of businesses were involved in this? That's the really fascinating thing. We had um, sectors from all across involved, from healthcare industries, from professional services, from marketing, um, some public sector agencies as well. So we, we offer, I suppose, the study to try and evaluate how we might apply such a principle in different sectors. And what we saw um, and our results have found is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to this. And different sectors will approach the reduction of working hours um, dependent on whatever their businesses are. Okay, and why do you think this is particularly relevant now? Well, I think the pandemic showed or really highlighted the importance of mental health for people and in many ways a lot of us are still dealing with some of the, the vicarious trauma associated with the pandemic so despite the fact I suppose we saw improvements like flexible working and hybrid working we're still seeing rising levels of burnout in the workforce and one of the key links to reduce burnout is actually reducing working hours and, and in doing so 
you end up improving things like processes and culture and leadership within organizations, which all influences on mental health and well-being as well. Right. And what, so right now, though, I guess a lot of the talk also has to do with labor shortages. Does that make this more, do you think, of an attractive time for employers to consider something like this? Yeah, it might seem counterintuitive if you're finding it hard to, if you feel you don't have enough staff to introduce something like this, but actually doing something like this could have two benefits. Um, first, it helps you to recruit new staff as well as retain those staff that you currently have. And it also has a benefit on some of the macroeconomic costs for organizations like absenteeism, presenteeism, burnout in the workforce. So what we're seeing is that even in industries where there is labor shortages, where they have introduced these, um, they have seen actual um, macroeconomic benefits to, to the implementation of reduced working hours. Right. But this was a pilot project then. So how do you continue on with this work? Are companies saying, listen, we'd like to keep on doing this? Yeah, so 92% of the companies involved in the UK study of nearly 3,000 employees are going to continue on with the pilot um, or the full implementation of the four-day week beyond this pilot period. Um, I suppose for many organisations, they want to see you know, how does this play out in the, the medium and longer term. But I think the fact that we saw such positive results in what is, I suppose, a difficult time for the labour market and what can often be a difficult challenge for organisations to even get themselves to a place of being able to maintain revenue and productivity, I think the signs are, are hopeful for the future of these organizations. Right. You really have to sell some some employers and managers on this, though, right? Because they're thinking, well, I'm giving people full pay to work fewer hours. Yeah, and I think that's what the pilot allows. It's, it's, it's a psychologically safe environment for organizations to explore some of the concepts of productivity for them and do so with support from our own expertise and from academic expertise. I suppose the caveat associated with all this is that it is just that, a pilot, and there will be lessons learned. And, you know, if for some reason it ultimately fails, you're not under obligation to continue to do so. But certainly from the data we're finding, the majority are finding that. And once you do the pilot, you're much more likely to keep doing it. Right. And what about the productivity issues? How did that go? So I think for many it was actually about redefining what they understood about productivity. Prior to this, many workforces defined the productivity of their staff based on time, but we know that's not a reflective metric of you know, business performance. Really, what I suppose organizations are doing is shifting to saying, well, what is it that we're trying to achieve in this organization and how can we reevaluate our productivity metrics to achieve that business outcome? And so people became a lot more um, succinct and defining what productivity meant for them and for their teams um, in a way that actually realized revenue benefits for their company. Right. We've talked a lot about the impact on businesses here, Dr. Wehelan, but what about employees? Like, how did they feel? What did it do for them? I mean, for employees, it was probably the most beneficial. Uh, The easier sell is obviously to say that 71% reported lower burnout, 39% reported lower levels of stress. And why is that so important The WHO, the World Health Organization, has defined stress as the most leading uh, cause of health burden from 2030 onwards. So really something as as drastic as reducing working hours could have a significant indent on on that health burden. As well as that then, you know, there was reductions in uh, fatigue and sleep difficulties um, and many improvements in their mental health as well. So where do you go from here with this research, which seems like a very successful pilot program, but what happens now? 
Well, I suppose the reaction um, has been international and really successful. So for Day Week Global, we're interested in partnering again with different jurisdictions and figuring out how this might work in jurisdictions beyond the UK, Ireland and the US. And so we're going to be running three forms of pilot studies going forward. Uh, we'll be doing our regional studies again in Europe and South Africa and Australasia. And then we'll also be running an asynchronous pilot program for any com- company interested in doing this in their own time. They can sign up and access those expertise for us as well. All right. Well, you're certainly getting a lot of attention for it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.